You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, Claire O'Brien. I'm a nurse practitioner in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'm going to answer 10 random questions today. I put up a question box on my Instagram and just um, pick kind of hard things, easy things, um, things about me, things about my career in healthcare, my, some questions this week I asked if I'm here with my husband, um, we're at the lake this weekend. So I was like, if you have any questions for Ed, I'll ask him. Um, yeah, so let's get started. So somebody asked what my first job was. Um, I, my first job as a nurse was a floor nurse, um, in a med surge unit at the VA hospital in Charleston. And so what that means is you just do literally everything. Um, and I think I've talked about this before, but you literally do take care of all kinds of patients. Um, so I learned so much in my job in med surge. I would not trade it for the world. It was incredibly hard. It was super physical. Um, particularly if you've ever worked at a VA hospital, they're like super understaffed, um, just in general. And it was, but it was awesome. Um, I also was like one, probably one of the youngest people at the hospital, um, aside from my husband and my friend, Hannah and my friend, Jennifer, and like that was kind of it. Um, because it's a really great federal job and it's really, one, it's really hard to get fired, but two people who work there generally tend to stay there because it's just like an amazing position. So that was my first job as a nurse. And while I was a nurse, um, I was in NP school and my first job out of NP school was what I I thought this was my dream job. I worked for two surgeons um, in a surgical oncology practice in an ap- academic medical center. And um, it basically, I was split between two surgeons and like split my time. And um, h- half the time I was with one of them and it was amazing. And I loved um, the collaboration and what, you know, this person became like a mentor and a friend and it was just like a wonderful relationship. And he obviously really respected me and, um, and my, my time and my work-life balance and all that. And then my other, um, half of my job, not so much. And, um, it just became really difficult and contentious. And I, I, it was very clear that I was not supported. Um, and kind of towards the end, there was, I mean, I don't need to go into detail, but there, there just was like a situation where, um, I was the kind of youngest, um, and least experienced and was put into like a really unfortunate situation and it was, and was not supported and then was told, um, you know, if you want to complain about it, you're replaceable. And so I was like, see you later. I'll have, have fun replacing me. And that person is terrible to work for and I think has gone through like a bunch of NPs since. So that's what happens when you treat people like that. So the moral of that story is I think when you, we put these dream jobs in on a pedestal, you know, and in our heads of like, this is exactly what I want to do. And I need to, I need to work myself into the ground and just take whatever is thrown at me so that I can be in this dream job. And that just simply wasn't true. I actually ended up, um, 
meeting another surgeon in one of the tumor boards that I used to attend and he had a position open in his practice and it ended up being just the most like wonderful eight years of my career and, um, was, was just a great decision to leave. Um, amazing decision to leave. So if you are in a position where you feel like you're not valued, um, get on, get to stepping. And that is not why I left my last job. I, it was just, um, time to go in life and adore my old boss. I think he listens to my podcast sometimes and that makes me happy because we are still actual friends. Um, so yeah, that was my very first job as a nurse and then first two jobs as an NP. So this episode is sponsored by Celadon, probably one of my favorite places in Charleston. So Celadon is a home store that they have like furniture, pillows, lamps, mirrors, accessories. I mean, everything you could think of for your house. And they have different things than anybody else. I love it. You can take your kids in there. There's like a little kid's corner where they can go watch TV and you can have a cup of coffee or wine or tea or beer. I mean, I don't really know what else you want in life. I love Celadon. They're always having the best sales. And if you're not local, you can go to celadonathome.com where they have tons of stuff from the store. Some of their furniture is on there. You can browse everything that they have and they'll ship it to you. And if you're also in Charleston, make sure you check out their warehouse where they have even better sales than they do in the store. We love Celadon. Another question that makes sense to answer next is then how did I transition into aesthetics um, and what are the legalities for an NP? So I actually had done a little bit, not much, but a little bit of aesthetic medicine in my ENT practice because I worked with a group um, for a long time that we had two surgeons that did facial plastics and actually one of my surgeons that I worked with broke her hand, um, mountain biking. And so I I had to help her do a lot of her aesthetic stuff for, um, for several months. And so that was kind of my first little taste of aesthetic medicine. And and we did a lot of facial plastic kind of reconstruction stuff and ENT and cancer was specifically what I did a lot of. Um, and so there, you know, that kind of helped me learn the facial anatomy really well. Um, and then obviously I am a consumer myself of, you know, Botox, Xeomin, all the aesthetic treatments. Um, but a friend of mine and colleague of my husband's had, you know, approached me and just asked if I kind of wanted to get into this, um, world with her of concierge aesthetic medicine. And, um, that was, right when I knew that I needed to transition out of my job um, at an academic medical center. I just, I knew that I could not uphold really what my patients in that practice needed from me. Um, my boss was great. I, I loved it. I, I mean, I literally, when I sat down and to tell him that I was leaving, I was like uncontrollably weeping because I was so sad to leave but I just, I knew that, that I, that I needed to. And that was really hard. I mean, that was legit, probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. But in terms of just the logistics of transitioning to something different as a nurse practitioner, um, depending on your certification. So I'm an adult nurse practitioner. You can transition to different subspecialties. Um, same with PAs. So PAs come out with a general degree. Nurse practitioners come out slightly more specialized. Um, but still very broad. So family, women's health, adult, pediatrics. So um, we are licensed to see specific age groups more than we are specialties. 
um, with the exception of like of uh, women's health, acute care. So, but they can still actually. I mean, it was still fairly flexible. So we have we all have broad degrees as APPs or mid levels. Um, and also, like I I don't find the term mid level offensive. I'm sorry. I know that some of you do. I just I don't find it offensive. But here we are. Um, so. When you come out of school and then you, unless you go into general practice, like um, an internal medicine practice or family practice, you can go and work with a specialist and essentially they train you and you guys together form what's called a scope of practice that says, um, this person has been trained to do X, Y, Z and I certify that, you know, I say that I have seen them do it depending on the laws in your state. So it's a little bit different in, in every state, you know, how many like say Georgia versus South Carolina, like South Carolina may not say a specific number of times that you have to do a procedure to be considered, you know, proficient or to put that in your scope. Whereas Georgia, and totally making this up, might say, oh, we want PAs to do 10 of this procedure, NPs to do 10 of this procedure, you know, supervised, and then their supervising physician can sign off. So it's a little bit different um, all over the country. It's a little bit different between NPs and PAs. So that's kind of a hard question to answer. But the point is, as a mid-level or APP, you can um, change your subspecialty at any time. Um, and you just essentially train with, you know, it's on-the-job training. So you train with who you're, you're working with. Um, so it's really important to work with somebody who you, you trust is teaching you um, the right way and that wants to teach you and that wants to encourage you to learn and grow. Um, I, one thing that I loved about um, my former couple of jobs was being able to do so much continuing education, particularly at an academic medical center. You're with residents and everybody's going to conferences and it's just a really, really fun um, way to continue to get more education as a nurse practitioner. So that is how I got into aesthetics. And now that's what I do. Um, I work part-time. I set my own schedule. I have, it just totally depends on how many patients I see per week. And I basically am busy when I want to be busy and I'm not busy when I don't want to be busy because that is how our company works. And it's awesome. Um, next question was, what do we know? And several I love how these questions come in groups. It always totally fascinates me, and I will never stop saying that. Several people actually asked about reinfection rates for COVID, and what do we know about that? Um, we don't. So that's not really a thing yet. We don't know. It's brand new. It has been not been around long enough. I was talking to Ed about this um, before so I could answer you guys intelligently because a lot of you know that's like what he does all day, every day right now. And yeah, we just don't know. Right now, there have been a few people around the world that have been re reinfected, we think, but that's like, so we're in like case report land, which means not, it's, it's just not enough information. Now, if it's happening, it's like a big deal. So, you know, there was an article recently about a guy like in Denmark or Germany or somewhere that had been reinfected and it made, you know, international news. So we just, we just have no idea. I mean, they're estimating some things, but everything's such an estimation. So we do think that the chances or likelihood of reinfection are low, but we don't know for how long. So like, is it six months? Is it a year? I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend to know. And I don't think that there's good information on that right now. And that is also what Ed says. 
and he is the dude that would know. Um, I love this question, anxiety medications and long-term effects. So this person said that they're taking Zoloft and people are really nervous about really any medication and the long-term effects. So what I would say about that, so first of all, most medications that are used to manage anxiety and depression um, symptoms, most medications are called SSRIs, um, which the, so they're serotonin drugs. There's there are several other categories, but that's by far the most common is SSRIs. So those are generally recognized as very safe. Um, but what I would say is look at the long term effects of not managing your anxiety. So I say so a lot. Sorry. But I'm not sorry. Anyway, so not managing your anxiety long term is like terrible for you. I mean, think about your blood pressure, your poor heart rate, you know, think about people that don't sleep very well. I mean, I personally am one of those people that anxiety affects my sleep tremendously. Like I, there are so many nights when I am not um, doing well with anxiety that I... I'm just awake for like hours and hours at a time. And we know, I mean, sorry, terrible sleep and not getting enough sleep is associated hugely with dementia. So, you know, we're all worried about the long-term effects of medications, but I think it's really prudent to worry about the long-term effects of the physical toll that something like uncontrolled anxiety or depression takes on um, your health outside of a medication. So I think a lot of pregnant and nursing women th- think this too, are in this kind of mindset of, um, I can't take anything cause it may, you know, I don't know if it's safe during pregnancy and nursing and OBs, you know, are over here like, yes, please get on your medication and please stay on the medication, pr- particularly throughout pregnancy and nursing, because we know that anxiety and depression, you know, uncontrolled affects you physically, emotionally, I mean, all of it. So I, um, I have no qualms about the long-term effects of, of any of those medications, particularly so many of them have been around and used for just decades and decades and decades. Um, so yeah, personally, I, I think they're great. And, um, we know that unmanaged is not good for long-term health. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling or access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Um, somebody asked, what clinical resources do I use? So I, that was such an interesting question. But a lot of people I know that listen are nurse practitioners or um, nurses or in the medical field. But I, So I think it depends on what you're doing and what you're looking for. So 
for example, now everybody loves up to date. I have always loved up loved up to date um, and got it for free, you know, forever while I, when I worked at the hospital. But recently, I actually bought a subscription. It's expensive, but I think um, when you're looking up general things, it is the best because it <laughs> they literally have the most up-to-date information on pretty much what you're looking for summarized. So let's say you want to look up, um, you know, how to treat a sinus infection. This is for general practitioner. If my ENT people are listening, like just muff earmuffs for a second. So say you want to look up sinus infection and the guidelines for that. It's summarizing the most up-to-date research on sinus infections. So starting, you know, what antibiotics should you use and why and in what population and what happens when this one fails. Not only that, if you log in, it keeps up with your CMEs and it is freaking magical. So every time you look something up, as you should, you get credit for continuing education, which it makes sense, doesn't it? Like I'm paying more attention to up to date and what I'm actually looking for than when sometimes when I'm at a conference and I'm like, I don't even know what this person's talking about in this lecture anymore, but I, I love up to date. Now I will say for things like cancer and really subspecialized things, like it's not that it's not, I would say not helpful at all. So up to date, um, you know, for general stuff. And then it really depends. Like, I, I mean, if I'm looking I don't know. I'm try, you know, it, I'll use the guideline that I feel is most clinically appropriate. So, for example, we've got this skincare box that is for, you know, pregnant and nursing women. Well, one, I go to my OB colleagues and ask them, like, point blank. But two, I, I first start with the ACOG guidelines. Like, I don't care what drugs.com says or, you know, even up to date. I, I'm, well, sometimes I'm sure up to date actually quotes ACOG, but. I go to the source specifically. Um, for cancer, you know, for the most part, you're using the NCCN guidelines. But so, I mean, it's just very different for everything. But even, I mean, even NCCN, you really, I don't know, it's, it's, that's a really hard question to answer because I think it totally depends on what you're doing. But for the most part, um, I would say up to date is probably my favorite resource just because it's so easy to use and they keep up with my CMEs. Maybe UpToDate wants to sponsor this podcast. I doubt it, but maybe they can, like, give me my membership for free, and they probably won't. Um, so the next question is, is adrenal fatigue uh, a thing, and are there supplements for it? So I would like for you to Google, if you have this question, there's a really good article about it um, called Adrenal Fatigue Does Not Exist a systematic review. So if you just Google that, the article will come up on PubMed. So there are different levels of research. Um, there's like a pyramid or, you know, tiers of research, if you will. And at the very bottom is just case reports, right? Which means like this person wrote a paper and said that this happened to this one person. And then as you go up the chain, there's different levels of research that are considered, you know, more intense, give us what much more information and kind of gold standard is, you know, double blind, randomized controlled trials with double blinded and placebo. And, but then the just Mac daddy of all research is what's called a systematic review. And a systematic review <laughs> reviews all of the things that may have to do with that one subject. So this is a systematic review 
of everything pretty much that has been written about adrenal fatigue. I mean, they include like 40 keywords. Like they, it's, so what they do is they describe, you know, in the beginning of every study, it tells you how the study was performed. So they basically pick like 40 terms that may be used in research about adrenal fatigue. So they go through all of that and conclude, and, and, it, and it's aside from that, you know, the like all of endocrinologists and endocrine societies, like on the front page of their website, it's like adrenal fatigue is not real. Here's the thing that's hard about this. This has been used as a diagnosis outside of the medical community, essentially to prey on people, patients that have very real symptoms and very real conditions that are not adrenal fatigue. And what's hard about that is that patients are going to, I don't, I'm not going to call anybody out, but like different practitioners or, um, you know, maybe health coaches, wh- whoever. And they're saying, oh, do you have this, this, and this, these symptoms? Oh, you do? Well, you fit into that. Look, you have adrenal fatigue. Here's some supplements. Maybe the person might feel better when they're taking the supplements, but they haven't actually helped the patient by determining, well, what was the underlying cause that actually gave them those symptoms? So, in fact, they may have, even though they maybe made the person feel better, perhaps temporarily, perhaps for longer term, they haven't actually solved a problem for them, and the person still has that underlying issue going on. Um, So I would encourage you, if you've been diagnosed with adrenal fatigue, um, to seek out somebody who can really help you figure out the root of your symptoms because your symptoms are real. Your symptoms are absolutely real. What's, what, what is happening is real, but that doesn't mean just because it fits into this kind of made up diagnosis doesn't mean that that's what's real. Your symptoms are real. You're, there's a, a million different symptoms, but, um, yeah, so, so that's a tough one, but I love that article. Adrenal fatigue does not exist a systematic review. So if you're questioning that or have, have, um, want to know, you know, what the actual research says, please read that. It came out about four years ago. So it's very, um, recurrent article. So somebody, okay, this is my favorite. And I posted it on Instagram because I love it so much. Someone posted this. I'm sure it's supposed to do be two questions, but I just wanted to read it as one because I felt like that was funnier. What's the best thing we do for our marriage and is, or what's the best thing you do for your marriage is laser hair removal worth it? And I was like, Laser hair removal probably would benefit our ma- our marriage significantly, but, um, you know, here we are. So, God, I hate shaving my legs. I just, I hate it, and I have eczema, and it's just, I, I can't, like, I'm sorry, it's the worst. So, for real, though, what is the best thing we do for our marriage? Um, for sure, it is spending time together away from our children, um, not that we don't love our children, obviously we love our children very much, but and in outside of our home, um, which has been obviously more difficult over the last um, eight nine months than um, ever before. But yeah, it's just a different level. If you're not having regular time with your spouse, not just alone, but outside of your home, I don't know what it is. There's just something about like your house and your routine and these patterns that we get in. And I mean, we went like. We will go nights and several nights in a row where we're both in the house and we're just like kind of doing our own thing, particularly because I'm with the kids more during the day and um, end up doing a lot of work like after my kids go to bed. Um, 
so yeah, time by ourselves and outside of our home and then marriage counseling. We have the best marriage counselors. They are actually in Texas. We talked to them on FaceTime. Um, Steve and Debbie, I'm pretty sure they don't know that I have a podcast, but in case they ever listen, um, we love y'all. So we started going to marriage counseling. I don't even know. Like I feel like a long time, like not maybe only a couple years into our marriage and really not for any reason, just for, we were just like, we can be better at this. Like we are, we're just having, I don't even know. Um, just, it's just marriage is hard. And if you think that it's not, you're very confused. Um, or, or you have like a unicorn marriage or either that or you're not, you're not married or you have a unicorn marriage. Some people just have those and that's great. But I think the majority of married couples would tell you that marriage is very hard. And, um, it's not something that's, talked about enough. Um, and, and I don't mean in a general sense of like complaining about our spouses. I mean, just that marriage is difficult and it takes actual work and, um, you know, giving up of self to meet what the other person needs. And it's really hard. So yeah, marriage counseling, time by ourselves and time, um, away from our children. Those are the things that we do for our marriage. Um, and I don't know, if laser hair removal is worth it, I would love to have the hair on my legs removed. I feel like I can't though because I have blonde hair. I don't know. Um, let me let me know if you've done that and it's worth it. It it probably is. Um, next question about worth it: collagen powder, liquid collagen, is it worth it? You know, this answer kind of bums me out. I want it to be yes. Ultimately, it's probably no. Um, there are a couple of like industry funded studies that say that there is a little bit of benefit. Um, so there's some, there's some data in orthopedic land. I don't think anything, any of the data I don't think is great. Um, that says that it might be beneficial for joint pain. And there's a little bit in skincare land that says that it might be beneficial for like the overall hydration and collagen production for your skin. But um, I would say there's a great post, um, Amanda Howell health posts about collagen powder, like probably three or four times a month. And it's the same post every time pretty much, but she, that's how much she gets asked about it. And she basically gives the breakdown of why protein powder, um, is so much more beneficial for like skin, hair and nails than, than collagen. Uh, I totally believe that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I go through spurts where I take it. It it does have protein. Um, I wish there was a non-animal form of collagen powder, but that's not a thing. Um, and I'm looking into trying to find a plant-based protein powder because I just don't, I'm like not trying to have that much more animal protein in my life. Um, yeah. So is collagen powder worth it? Probably not. And also I tell every patient that asks me this, like, listen, if you want to take collagen, but you're not on like a bomb ass skincare routine, then like get out of here because nothing is going to improve your skin more than the daily religious use of SPF, vitamin C, retinoids, and really great um, skincare, whether, you know, that is a mix of drugstore and medical grade um, or not please don't use luxury skincare. I should do a whole podcast on that. But don't even bother with collagen if you're not using really good skincare and taking care of your skin because then you're that take your money and just set it on fire. 
So somebody asked to talk about experiences with patients that made a lasting impression. Um, this is both difficult and easy. So I, I don't know if I've ever really talked about this like how, uh, on this podcast, but being in cancer land for like 10 years, um, you know, when you tell people that you work in cancer, they're like, oh my God, that's so hard. You know, how do you do it? That's so hard. It must be so sad. And it's, it's really not most of the time because I, I think that there is something about us in this field that you just kind of go home and you don't think about it as much because you literally can't. Like you literally cannot, you you do in a lot of ways. So, you know, gosh, this is just hard. It's hard to answer. You do in a lot of ways. I mean, there, there are nights when, yeah, you would go home and just absolutely perseverate on a treatment that you picked for that person or, and I'm sure like my surgeons I know would go home and perseverate on, you know, what they did in the OR that day. But just in a general sense, like we all have this ability to separate a little bit because you just kind of have to. Um, But yeah, then there would be certain patients who you would connect with for whatever reason on a different level. Um, And you would totally let their lives kind of infiltrate yours. And like, for instance, my favorite patient like of all time was maybe like 15 years older than me, a male um, not my same race. Like we had nothing in common. I'm saying all that to be like, this is a dude that I, that is not like we, we had almost nothing in common other than we were just like humans. And I can't even explain. He didn't really have that bad of a cancer, you know, nothing crazy was going on. Um, sometimes his, um, partner wife would come with him and was great. And, but like, I just was like, God, this guy is my favorite ever. And I couldn't explain it. And his cancer came back and I was like devastated. And I, his name will like pop into my mind. I literally like 18 months later and I'll text my old boss and be like, how is so-and-so doing? But then there was one patient one time who was my same age. Um, We had kids the same age and she became like an actual friend. And I, had my Bible study group pray for her, and she always, like, gave me permission to tell her story and what was going on with her, and she had tongue cancer at a very young age for no reason. She was not a smoker. She was not a drinker. She obviously didn't, like, dip. She didn't have HPV. I mean, nothing that would indicate why she got this tongue cancer, Um, and it was pretty brutal, and she was in remission for a little bit, and then her cancer came back, and her kids were literally the exact same age as mine um, at the time, two and four, and, or, like, one and three, Um, and she had my cell phone number and my email and we would talk and she would text me and, and ultimately she died. Um, and it was horrible and it caused me such a significant amount of anxiety, um, for weeks and it it was really hard, obviously not nearly as hard as it was on her family. Um, and her children, you know, and her husband, but it just reminded me, I was like, gosh, you know, this is why there has to be some sort of wall 
for us to be able to do what we do. And the wall is weird because there are times when the wall comes down totally. But then to keep functioning and to keep going and to keep practicing in that space every day, the wall is very real. And we joke and we, you know, and we... (laughs) get frustrated with these patients in the same way that you would get frustrated with other patients about stupider stuff. Um, because I think if you don't normalize it in some way, you just can't continue to, to do what you're doing. Um, yeah, but that was probably, um, one of the patients that impacted me, um, in my life the most. I still think about her all the time. And, um, you know, yeah, it was, it was crazy, but, Um, it is what it is. And I was glad that I had that experience with her and she was, she was really special. So lastly, I've been trying to end on a happy note and this may be happy, maybe not. I don't know. Taking a left. What is the grossest thing that we've both seen in medicine? So Ed is really frustrating to answer this question because I feel like when he would come home from the ER and be like, Ooh, what happened? What, like what happened there? You know, what was the trauma? What was the this or that? And he was the worst. He'd be like, I don't know. I really don't know. Like rarely would he come home and actually tell me a story of what would happen. And so I asked him and I am like, what's the grossest thing you've ever seen? And he legit was like, I don't know. I don't know. So he's kind of terrible in that way. I would say probably things that people put in their butts are what would, what he would say. The grossest thing that I have ever seen. And I don't even know. Well, first of all, like tumor, necrotic tumor, like smells really bad. So there's that. But the grossest thing that I've ever seen was working with one of my surgeons and we did salivary gland procedures. So like you've got these, you know, you've got your saliva glands in your mouth that make your spit. So under your tongue, you have two really big saliva glands. And if they get infected, pus can come out of the glands. So we would see people for that and we had this special procedure that we were doing and blah, blah, blah. This dude comes in and I'm doing the exam and he opens his mouth and I press on the gland and poor angel, his whole mouth pus comes pouring out of the saliva gland and fills this person's entire mouth. At that moment, I thought to myself, this is how I'm going to die in this room. Like not just the smell, but it's pus in your mouth. Like he's, letting me examine him like a sweet, sweet angel that he is. And I'm like, well, now he feels like he can't even spit it out. I don't even know what to do. I mean, I don't, I honestly, I blacked out. Like, I don't remember what happened after that, but that was the the grossest 30 seconds of my life. And, uh, I'll never forget it. And that was several years ago. So, uh, man, shout out to Boyd Gillespie. If he's ever listening, that was the (laughs) grossest thing I've ever seen. Oh, and then I've moved on. I've moved on. Although I kind of haven't because it was horrible. Well, that was it. That was the 10th question. Puss in your mouth. You're welcome. I hope you guys come back. You probably won't because that was traumatic for everybody involved. But as always, y'all, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the questions. They're always so good and so fun. And I love um, thinking about them and answering them. 
Um, I have some amazing podcasts coming up and um, in the next couple of weeks, I've got Parent Like a Pediatrician. I've got Holly Tecco. So definitely stay tuned. Um, And as always, if you like the podcast, share it, rate it, um, subscribe, tell your friends. That's how people find us and tune in next week. Thanks. Thanks.